Good morning, Sleepy Town. I'm Bo Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House, Art House Radio from 88.5 WCUG, coming to you from way down in beautiful downtown Columbus, Georgia, from across the tracks at 9th and Broadway, from the Carpenters Building, Columbus State University. So glad you're with us this morning on the radio. Thanks for tuning in. We have a nice show for you today. I think you'll enjoy the show. We have a nice show. It's called Finding Harvey Dinnerstein. Harvey Dinnerstein. Harvey Dinnerstein was a painter. He's just passed away. He passed away last week. And we are so sad because he was an important influence on me. When I was a kid, I was at Brookstone and I was in high school, and I wasn't interested in many of the books they had to read. So one of my teachers, I think it was Mrs. Hugenberg, gave me a book by Chaim Potok, the um, Hasidic Jewish writer out of Pennsylvania. And he wrote a book. You would have heard of some of them. You've probably heard of The Chosen but he had written a book called My Name is Asher Lev. My Name is Asher Lev. And that was an important, influential book on me in high school because it was about a Hasidic Jewish boy who wanted to be an artist in New York, in Brooklyn. And he didn't want to go against his religion, which didn't want the artists to be making graven images. But at the same time, he had a deep need to express himself. So he struggled with his religious upbringing. I think that Mrs. Hugenberg saw a similar struggle in me as a young painter dealing with my strong religious upbringing, my strong Baptist upbringing, and my struggling to be an artist at the same time. So Ms. Hugenberg recommended that book. I read the book and I was inspired to go to Florence, to travel to Florence, Italy, to become an artist. So I want to thank Miss Hugenberg for that. Today's show, we will play just a nice selection of music, morning music for you, and we will have a little story about finding Harvey Dinnerstein. We're going to start off with a piece, a piano piece by Olafur Arnolds. It's a lovely piece, followed up by several other piano selections from Max Richter and uh, Philip Glass and others. So stay tuned. Glad you're with us this morning on The Art House. Thank you. 
I'm Bo Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House on 88.5 WCUG. The year must have been 1976. I was a young painter living in Pennsylvania. Well, I wasn't a painter yet. I was just a student, a student of painting, trying to learn how to paint. I had moved there from Georgia via Florence, Florence, Italy. I'd read Chaim Potok's My Name is Asher Lev, and I was searching, searching for a teacher who could teach me how to paint in a traditional, vibrant, representational manner. It may seem hard to believe now, but in 1976 there were not many teachers who held the knowledge or were willing to share it. All art, all serious art at least, art that one could easily find out about from newspapers, magazines, or by word of mouth, was abstract, abstract art. There were very few places where one could go to learn the secret of the masters. But I, I was on a quest. It had led me to Florence at age 18, where I studied drawing with American expatriate painter Ben Long. Ben Long was a student of Pietro Anagoni, the fresco painter, the great Italian fresco painter. While in Florence, a group of expats met regularly for a small life drawing class. And it was after one of these classes that expatriate Charles Cecil, in conversation with Ben Long and Richard Mowry, named off a list of realist painters living in America, painters who might take students. Now, one must remember that there was no internet at the time. All information about such esoteric subjects was passed down by a small but earnest cadre of students. I was looking for a teacher, someone I could study with in America. So the information that was shared that evening was like gold to me. Folks on the short list of about 10 names of American realist painters included Andrew Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth in Pennsylvania, and Ives Gamble, the mural painter in Boston, and Richard Lack in Minnesota, and Nelson Shanks, Nelson Shanks in Pennsylvania, and Aaron Schickler, the illustrator in New York. They were all, all well-known, and there were others on the list as well. Within a year, I had moved, moved from Florence to Pennsylvania, and I'd enrolled in the University of the Arts and set out to meet these artists one by one in search for the perfect teacher. I contacted Andrew Wyeth via 411 on the telephone, called information, got his number, and he let me know decisively in no uncertain terms that he was not taking any students. Meanwhile, I transferred to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts after seeing the Gross Clinic by Thomas Aikens. And I realized that Aikens had studied there, and so I enrolled to the Pennsylvania Academy. The Academy was filled with memories, echoes and shadows of its heyday. But it was the middle 70s, the 1970s, and as an institution, the Academy had embraced all the contemporary art movements, abstraction, expressionism, conceptualism, in exhibitions there, I'd seen the likes of Diebenkorn and Stella and such. Still, I felt that the secrets of the masters, the old masters, was like a grail to me. And at the time, abstractionists, the abstractionists of the day held only a passing interest for me. I was driven to discover and learn the deeper lost secrets of the more traditional arts. 
American artist Nelson Shanks lived in New Hope, Pennsylvania. He was one of the leading portrait painters of the day. I spent two years privately studying privately alongside him as an apprentice. It was a coveted position, as only the students with the most potential, in other words, the ability to draw, were selected to be Shanks's apprentices. Shanks, as a portraitist, had an uncanny ability to capture a likeness, and his knowledge of history of painting was vast and deep. Still, even though I was learning to paint what I saw in front of me, with a tradition passed down directly from the European masters, I was looking for something, something more, for someone who had tackled grander, more ambitious and dramatic scenes. It was around this time, while I was first studying with Shanks, this would have been in the 70s, mid-70s, 76, 77, I found my way up to Boston to visit another artist on that list from the expats in Florence, Ives Gamel. Ives Gamel was an old curmudgeon of a man living and working in the eponymous studio school at Fenway Studios, not far from the Museum of Fine Arts. Gamel had, had an old school air about him. He was rude and curt. He demanded devotion from all of his students and insisted on their full attention. The day I spent with him was just all about him. Everything was about him. And when he finally turned and asked me a question, he asked how I had found my way to him. Who had told me about him? I answered, telling him that his name was on a list, a short list of Americans that I'd gathered in Florence. And then he asked about the names on the list, so who, the, who the artists were, and, and who were the artists that had compiled the list and given me his name. And I responded, I told him, I told him who had given me the names on the list. I told him Charles Cecil and Richard Mowry and Ben Long. And he turned to me and he said, oh, so you're a name dropper, hey? I was 19. Or 20 and I just looked at him I just looked at him for a long silence and I realized that this man was not my man he was not my teacher but he was he was strong and he had a strong following and a strong dedicated devoted group of students they all appreciated his rigorous approach to teaching his sight size approach to teaching one of his students was a nice, lean artist, a young artist named Hilary Holmes. Holmes was one of his advanced students. And later, in visiting his studio, filled with his impressive works, including a gorgeous portrait of his blonde, young blonde wife. It was a, almost like a betrayal to Gamble when he leaned and whispered into me about a previous instructor that he'd had in New York, an instructor named Harvey Dinnerstein. Holmes had a life-size study which Dinner Dean had painted and given to him as a gift for posing. It was a virtuosic display, half reclining, a man and a young woman, apparently outdoors in late afternoon sunlight, rendered in broad, bold strokes. Who was this Dinner Dean? He wasn't on the list of American painters that the expats had given me. Holmes told me that I should give him a visit, look him up. He was talented. He was a teacher and he dared to paint large, ambitious paintings. 
and then leaning in and whispering even softly, possibly betraying his current instructor. He added, Harvey is a nice man. I got Dennerstein's number. I looked it up in the phone book under the area code of Brooklyn, and I called him. That's how things were back then. You call people on the telephone. <laughs> I drove up from Philadelphia in my wife's yellow Toyota Corolla. I had first scheduled to meet Aaron Chickler uptown in his studio in the morning. He was polite, a polite man, giving me an hour of his time, very efficient and organized. Schickler was on that list and from Florence. He was well known at the time for his poignant portrait of John F. Kennedy looking downward and walking as if in a dream. The painting hangs in the White House. And although he had a marvelous touch and facility, there was something about Schickler that just didn't feel like he would be my teacher, which felt like maybe he was living in a time that had already passed. Even though he was a contemporary painter, it was as if his glory, his past glory, was still hovering in the air around him. In the afternoon after lunch, I'd arranged to meet Harvey Dinnerstein. He lived over on President Avenue near Prospect Park. I was only 21. I was young and innocent and green. Harvey Dinnerstein, even then when I met him at his door, when he answered his door, seemed like an old man to me. But he was an enthusiastic and vibrant old man. But in reality, he must have only been in his 50s and his mid-50s. I was just young and he seemed old. But with his long, graying, salt-and-pepper beard, he appeared to be an old man. In the dining room of his brownstone at 933 President Avenue hung the most ambitious painting I'd ever seen by a contemporary living painter. His painting, The Parade, a large multi-figure composition depicting a 60s-style protest replete with hippies and nude figures and mixed races, people of color, a pig's head on a stake, a galloping horse, a rider bedeckled with hippie clothes, and a skeleton with an hourglass held up and a little boy blowing bubbles, and a running goat decked in flowers. The painting was filled with so much energy and life, I'd never seen anything like it. I couldn't believe that it was painted by a living artist. Its composition and technique were founded on the solid principles of the masters, but its subject, its subject was current, of the moment, of its time. I was raised in the era of protests in the 1960s, I felt the energy and the power of the whole era in this one painting. It spoke to me on a deep, resounding level. I had found the grail. I had found the Jewish painter who was the living embodiment of Chaim Potok's fictional Asher Lev. Someone had brought it all together. Someone who, in the words of Robert Beverly Hale, was driving all the horses at once. I was in awe. And yet, Dinnerstein was a humble man. He was humble. He seemed appreciative that this young painter, unknown painter from Georgia, Florence, Pennsylvania, was interested in his work. 
he invited me upstairs into his studio. It was on the top floor of his brownstone where he lived with his wife Lois, an art historian, and his teenage children. I learned that he taught at the Art Students League and the School of Visual Arts and the National Academy of Design. But even with those commitments, primarily he was a painter. Entering his light-filled studio, illuminated by a rooftop skylight, was like being invited into a secret realm. His drawings and paintings were strewn everywhere. What was supposed to be an hour-long studio visit stretched into the late afternoon as he opened drawer after drawer of his flat files, revealing drawing after drawing. Rough, semi-abstract charcoal compositional drawings, finely rendered silver point drawings that looked like they could have come from the hands of Ang or Durer. He spent the whole afternoon sharing tips with me, never in an egotistical way, always in an attempt to just offer me, offer me what I needed. He listened and responded to my questions. He was alive in the moment, but held the realm, held the experience and the wisdom of all the knowledge of all the past masters. Time stood still in his studio that day. Light from the late afternoon sun seemed eternal on his studio wall. I had finally found what I was looking for. And although I never moved to New York, and I never officially studied with Harvey Dinnerstein. He was a great teacher and a great mentor to me. He was a sage. We wrote letters back and forth for many years. Finally, I divorced and moved away from Pennsylvania. I moved all around the country while he stayed put in his home in Brooklyn. My address kept changing, but still somehow he managed to find me, to get letters to me through my different galleries. It's a rare thing for us to meet that one person who has exactly what we need, and rarer still for them to be open and giving and willing to share. We own one small drawing in our collection, a charcoal and pencil drawing on buff paper. It appears to be a road, a piece of highway, perhaps in Ohio, perhaps on a summer evening. It looks like a Dutch drawing by Rembrandt, or maybe a Van Roosdel. But then, one notices in the distance, a car, a car on the road, rounding the bend, taillights leaving the picture. It appears to be an old Chevy from the early 60s, the wing lights disappearing around the curve. A gorgeous example of Harvey Dinnerstein's mastery. Wherever Harvey Dinnerstein is, wherever he is going, he is happy, he is content. He played the game on his own terms. He made a life, a life out of it. He had his family and his home, his culture. He painted within a tradition that he honored and admired. Yet he made work that was fresh and alive it doesn't represent a decade or a half century. It is more than just the time in which he existed on this planet. Harvey Dinnerstein captured a whole era, a time that is fleeting and will never return. The moment, the microcosm in which he lived, but the macrocosm 
of the whole era in human culture, the Renaissance, the Judeo-Christian tradition, his domestic life, social upheavals, protests, New York City, the art world, the current events of the day, the whole thing. Harvey Dinnerstein got it and gave it back. It is there, it's there in his paintings and in his indelible spirit that inhabits his work and the work of his students and all the people whose lives he has touched by being real and selfless, by giving up an afternoon of painting to spend time sharing drawings with a young unknown art student in his upstairs studio as the sun sinks low and streaks across the wall forever and ever.
That was To Heal em by Steve Reich. Ah, boy, Steve Reich, what a great musician. What a way to end out the show here with To Heal em, which just means, translates, it's Hebrew, it translates as、uh, praise or psalms or praise. Thanks for listening to our show today. Glad you were able to join us, our show honoring the life of Harvey Dinnerstein. Harvey Dinnerstein was my teacher, my、um, inspiration, and compadre、uh, via letters over many, many years of my life and career. And he will be sorely missed. Let's give a quick rundown of the music we heard today. We heard Frolic by Jake X. Fussell. We heard Freista by Olafur Arnolds. We heard Embers by Max Richter. The Far Road by Nick Cave. And a piece from The Hours by Philip Glass. In the middle, during the story about Harvey, we heard Man Bartlett with 2018 0516. And then we heard a piece by Simone Dinnerstein, Harvey Dinnerstein's niece, An Elegy for Our Time. And then we heard To Helum Part 3, followed by To Helum Part 1. Behind us here, you hear Pope Shalom, Him for Her. I want to thank Sho Irokawa, our engineer extraordinaire. Thank you, Sho. Without you, we would not be here. I want to thank CSU for letting us be on the radio. I want to thank you for listening. Thanks for being with us on The Art House. Harvey Dinnerstein. Harvey Dinnerstein. What a great man, and I、uh, hope you'll look his work up. Just look it up and, and see the vast depth of the social commentary and his life. You'll see his whole life in paint. He was born in Brooklyn in 1928, and he passed this past week, June 21st, on、uh, June 21st. He studied at Tyler in Pennsylvania and he had work in the Metropolitan Museum and the Butler Art Institute, the Smithsonian, and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. He's, he's survived by his wife Lois and their children Rachel and Michael, by his brother Simon and his niece, pianist Simone Dinnerstein. Thanks for joining us today on The Art House. See you right back here next week. Hope you'll get out and see some art. Hope you'll go make some art. Paint some paintings, draw some drawings, write your story, sing your song, dance your dance, make your movie. You have but one life. So let's live it and let's make this world a better place. Thanks for listening. Love and light, y'all.